the Artist Plunge podcast, a podcast exploring the curious relationship between artists and the other professions, jobs, and experiences that have allowed them to plunge into the art they create. I'm your host, Christy Darnell Batani. Today's episode is going to be a bit different. Typically, this would be an Artish Words episode, where I share well-written blog posts by other artists. But today, I want to go in a slightly different direction and share my own thoughts about an artist until who recently was unknown to me, Maria Primachenko. I want to talk about Maria's work, but more specifically, why Maria matters in this moment. I suspect all of you listening are familiar with the horrors of the Russian invasion of the sovereign nation of Ukraine and the inexcusable loss of lives occurring in that country. Perhaps you have heard or read about the destruction of some institutions, cultural, and civilian spaces that certainly have the appearances of being intentional targets. Among those, the press has reported the destruction of a small museum near Kiev that housed the works of native Ukrainian artists, including 25 works by the Ukrainian folk artist Maria Primachenko. Maria's granddaughter, who heads the Primachenko Family Foundation, confirmed that an unnamed individual ran into the flames and saved some of Primachenko's works, although it was unclear how many and what damage was suffered. You may be asking yourself, when so many innocent lives have been lost or are endangered, is art really worth being among our top concerns? I received an email this week from an organization that I support, the Center for Art Law, whose founder and managing director, Irina Tarsis, was born in Kiev and is a Russian-speaking, naturalized American with Jewish and Ukrainian roots. As Irina said, art makes life worth living. I would go further. Art is the embodiment of a group of people. Art is evidence that a group of people exist. And if you want to demoralize a group of people, if you want to erase a group of people, you destroy the art that represents them. I want to use this episode of the podcast to explore the life and works of Maria Primachenko, what she gave her community and ours, and why any of that matters. At the end of the episode and in the show notes, I will share some resources where you can learn more and offer help to the artists and institutions trying to protect Ukrainian artworks like Maria's. So perhaps you have seen some of Maria's work on social media or the news lately. Colorful, fantastical creatures, bold patterns. Her paintings are referred to as naive art, a term used to describe the work of folk artists who did not receive formal art training and who are completely self-taught. Maria found her sources and themes in the decorative wall paintings that were prominent features in Ukraine, in lullabies, folk legends, and fairy tales, and in the nature that surrounded her. But don't let the simplicity of those images deceive you. Maria was born to a peasant family in 1908 in Blotnya, about 45 miles northwest of the Ukrainian capital, Kiev. Although they led a simple life, Maria's parents were both creative. Her father was a carpenter, and her mother created beautiful embroidery. And Maria was allowed to wander the countryside to play. Maria shared her earliest memory of painting. Quote, Once as a young girl, I was tending a gaggle of geese. When I got with them to a sandy beach on the bank of the river, after crossing a field dotted with wild flowers, I began to draw real and imaginary flowers with a stick on the sand. And then I saw the bluish silt underneath 
Later, I decided to paint the walls of my house using those natural blue clay pigments. After that, I never stopped drawing and painting. Maria painted the exterior of their house with ornamental flowers and birds. Soon, other neighbors began asking her to decorate their houses with her painted designs. But life was not always carefree for Maria. As a young girl, she became ill with what later was diagnosed as polio and was confined to bed. No longer able to run and play outdoors or attend school, she took to drawing and embroidery in her bed. Her neighbors were particularly fond of her embroidery work. In 1935, a visiting artist, Tetnia Fluoro, was so enamored with Maria's embroidery work that she saw in the local market that she invited Maria to Kiev to work with professional artists and participate in the Central Experimental Workshop. Prior to the workshop, Maria's drawings and embroidery had been limited to flowers and patterns of nature, but the workshop encouraged her to paint images of her own creation, including her earliest fantastical birds and animals. Using watercolor paint and small sheets of paper, Maria used heavy outlines filled with colorful, rhythmic, ornamental designs to create her animals. Blue lions, plumed birds, hat-wearing elephants. 1936 was a very productive artistic year for Maria, resulting in a series of her wild animals. Her art was exhibited in an entire hall at the First Republican Exhibition of Folk Art in Kiev which led to a string of successful exhibitions in Paris, Warsaw, Montreal, and Prague. In 1937, she was invited to participate in the International Exhibition of Paris and received praise, respect, and a gold medal for her work. Pablo Picasso was reportedly a big fan of Maria's work, exclaiming, I bow down before the artistic miracle of this brilliant Ukrainian woman. Marc Chagall, too, greatly admired her work, and it is believed Maria's work served as an inspiration for Chagall's own colorful, fantastical creatures. Around this same time, Maria had an operation that made it easier for her to walk, although she would use a cane for the entirety of her life. She fell in love and was engaged to be married when World War II erupted. Maria's brother and her fiancé were killed in service, leaving Maria alone and pregnant with their child. She did very little artwork during these years, and like many of us, finding the day offered little time for art making after her chores and childcare duties were complete. Her embroidery from this time period was almost always on a black background, and overall her color palette was dark. By the late 1940s, Maria started to paint again as a break from her caregiving responsibilities, and for the first time her work started to include landscape and story compositions. Her paintings were similar to embroidery work. She incorporated color to her background and drew outlines with pencil. She started working larger, frequently creating pots of fantastical flowers that filled the surface. In 1959, she was accepted into the Union of Artists of Ukraine and was asked to go to Moscow for recognition. She had never been beyond Kiev and was frightened by the idea of going to Moscow and declined to go. By the 1960s, Maria's color palette became much brighter and bolder, often using gouache and colors more associated with fauvism, although it is unclear whether her color palette was determined by choice or simply what was available to her in her small town. Her materials remained perfunctory throughout her career, using factory-manufactured brushes, gouache, watercolors, and Wattman filter paper. In 1966, she became one of the first folk painters to receive one of the country's highest honors, 
the Taras Shevchenko National Prize of Ukraine. Her popularity grew, and other established artists traveled to visit her in her small town. Although she was asked many times to create commissioned work or to sell her work, she declined, preferring to give her artwork to family and friends. As a result, many families in the Kiev area own an original Primachenko. In the following decade, Maria's work grew in scale and she began to sign her name to her work. She created an art school for children in Botneva and took great pride in teaching them all of the painting skills she had acquired. She painted consistently, rising at dawn and going immediately to her easel before eating breakfast. In 1970, she was officially dubbed the People's Artist of Ukraine. Throughout her body of work, certain animals and symbols appear more frequently, specifically the lion, the oak tree, and flowers. I think part of what makes Maria's work so inviting is her frankness, her honesty, her authenticity. Perhaps it was her own struggles with illness, loss, and hardship that made her so capable of empathetically illustrating those universal experiences in the form of almost childlike flora and fauna. Maria experienced firsthand the sorrow of famine, world wars, and multiple battles for independence. When Maria was a child, for example, total chaos engulfed Ukraine. As Canadian scholar Or Subaltis explains, quote, In the modern history of Europe, no country experienced such complete anarchy, bitter civil strife, and total collapse of authority as did Ukraine at this time. Six different armies, those of the Ukrainians, the Bolsheviks, the Whites, the French, the Poles, and the anarchists, operated on its territory. Kiev changed hands five times in less than a year. Cities and regions were cut off from each other by the numerous fronts. Communications with the outside world broke down almost completely. The starving cities emptied as people moved into the countryside in their search for food. Maria saw war with her own eyes, losing family members and friends. She held that experience of loss, but channeled it into generosity and a big heart that insisted that all people deserve respect and love. She felt war destroys the most precious ties and creates barriers between people. She reportedly said, quote, I don't need these borders. The main thing is that people should be kind. Maria Primachenko's art has become an example of protest art and is being used as a symbol of peace and resistance all over the world. Although she avoided overt political commentary during her life, many of her paintings demonstrate her anti-war messages. In Green Elephant, a small painting from 1936, Maria depicts a large green elephant sporting a military hat frequently worn by communist dictator Joseph Stalin while a small, fantastical bird rides atop the elephant's back into a field of flowers, perhaps suggesting the inequality between Ukraine and its behemoth Russian neighbor, and the hope for peace. Later titles became more directly anti-war, often pitting good against evil, including May That Nuclear War Be Cursed from 1978, Our Army, Our Protectors, also in 1978, Flowers for Peace, 1983, May I Give This Ukrainian Bread to All People in This Big Wide World, 1982, and The Threat of Nuclear War, from 1986. One of her paintings in particular, A Dove Has Spread Her Wings and Asked for Peace, from 1982, 
has become a frequently used symbol against the current war in Ukraine. Calling for an end to the war currently being waged in Ukraine, this image has been used as a street mural in St. Louis, Missouri, and in San Francisco, accompanied by the text, Stop the War on Ukraine. And it's been projected onto the side of a building in Oakland, California. Maria died in 1997 at the age of 81, leaving behind over 600 works now housed in the National Museum of Ukrainian Folk Decorative Arts, as well as countless other works in smaller museums like the one destroyed in Ivankiv Historical and Local History Museum, and countless of pieces in the homes of friends, family, and neighbors in her community. I think that's what makes Maria so important and so threatening to outside forces. All of Ukraine holds a bit of Maria in their hearts, if not their homes, and in their communities. She represents a generous spirit and a connection to an ideal that communities support and care for one another. In other words, she represents the people of Ukraine. So we should hardly be shocked to learn that the Russian state press agency published an article suggesting that solving the, quote, Ukraine question would require not only the destruction of Ukraine's cities, but also its heritage. Not surprisingly, they recognize the power of a small, seemingly harmless peasant like Maria. She represents the spirit, the faith, and the hope of an entire group of people. So much so that in 2009, UNESCO declared 2009 the year of Primachenko. But back to the present. Current Ukrainian Minister of Culture has requested that UNESCO revoke Russia's membership in that organization for their deliberate destruction of museums like the one which housed Maria's work outside of Kiev. By UNESCO's own resolutions, the deliberate destruction of a country's or a culture's heritage is considered a war crime. Yet surprisingly, UNESCO's World Heritage Convention Summit is scheduled to take place in June of this year in, wait for it, the Russian city of Kazan. Calls for UNESCO to condemn Russia's actions or at the very least to change locations for the annual conference have been met with silence. So, what is being done to protect Maria's work and other cultural heritage works and sites in Ukraine? At a local level, volunteers are working around the clock to safeguard buildings with protective material and wrapping monuments in foam, plastic sheeting, and sandbags. Local artists and curators are wrapping and moving works below ground to bunkers. One of the most successful efforts to protect Ukraine's contemporary art is underway in the city of ivano Franzivsk, where an artist collective has converted a subterranean cafe into a bunker. Working day and night with a network of van drivers, the works of more than 30 artists have been moved here from all over Ukraine. At larger institutions, employees are working to wrap and ship valuable works to safer locations. However, the challenge for museum authorities and artists in Ukraine doesn't end with making their collection ready to transport. Moving Ukrainian art requires going through a lot of paperwork and government formalities before the collections can go to some other country. This could take weeks or more. The Cultural Heritage Monitoring Lab at the Virginia Museum of Natural History, in partnership with the Smithsonian, is monitoring cultural heritage sites in Ukraine and trying to assist with cataloging and processing their transportation to safer locations. But as art historians and experts know, the risks of destruction and looting loom large. So what does an artist, or anyone who cares about art, do in a crisis like this? 
As 25-year-old Ukrainian artist Anna Potyomkina is quoted as saying, quote, A lot of our artists are questioning their role. Like, shouldn't I pick up a gun? Does art as a weapon act too slowly? But creating art when Russia is bombing museums and studios is a big and necessary part of our resistance. But what if you, a non-Ukrainian artist or resident, want to do something? What can you do? Obviously, monetary contributions to humanitarian efforts are always needed. I will include a link in the show notes to an NPR list of reputable charitable organizations. But other ways you can offer support more specifically related to the arts world include you can lend your time to organizations such as Saving Ukrainian Cultural Heritage Online or SUCHO, S-U-C-H-O, an initiative that sprung up to collect and archive digital resources about Ukrainian cultural heritage. The link is in the show notes. You can offer support to the Library of Ukrainian Art. Contact information in the show notes. You can learn about the different artist shelters and emergency relief funds being created throughout Europe. Again, a link in the show notes to the Google Doc that is constantly being updated. You can follow and support the work of the Museum of Ukrainian Folk Art on Instagram at museum underscore folk underscore art. You can post messages on your social media accounts encouraging UNESCO to denounce Russia's deliberate destruction of Ukrainian cultural sites and heritage and to move the upcoming UNESCO World Heritage Committee meeting away from Russia. Use the hashtag UNESCO and UNESCO World Heritage in your posts. You can include some of Maria's work in your own life. The Primachenko Family Foundation has partnered with upstart Ukrainian clothing creators PP Partem, that's P P P A R T E M, to produce some great hoodies reaching some of Maria's most fantastical creatures and some great background on what each of those creatures meant to Maria. The link will be in the show notes. Similarly, the Primachenko Family Foundation has partnered with Rug Your Life to create children's rugs with artworks by Maria Primachenko. Each rug is made to order and is 100% of the proceeds donated to support Ukraine. And you can support or participate in one of the countless organized art exhibitions and auctions happening at a grassroots level to give proceeds to various Ukrainian aid organizations. I encourage you to share any such reputable art events in the comments section of this episode or on the Artish Plunge podcast Instagram post for this episode so that we can collect as many of these opportunities in one place as possible. That's all for today. Thank you all for joining me, for listening, for caring. I don't have the solutions to this madness. I just know that you, me, and all the Marias of the world need to keep making, sharing, and protecting art. If you found this episode helpful, please consider sharing the link with others or leave a review on the Apple Podcast Ratings and Review section. Until next time, stay kind, stay positive, and keep swimming. 